You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash Ellison Center. Today we're happy to have Connor O'Dwyer, who uh, got his PhD at Berkeley in 2003. We actually overlapped there in late last millennium when I was an undergrad student and he was a TA in a class I was taking with uh, Steve Fish. Not my TA, the other one. But I heard you were really good. <laughs> Since then, he has become an associate professor of political science at the University of Florida, he specializes in comparative politics with a thematic focus on LGBT politics, social movements, democratization, and the state, and a regional emphasis in East Central Europe. His first book is called Runaway State Building, Patronage, Politics, and Democratic Development. Uh, In addition to his time at the University of Florida, he's been an academy scholar at the Weatherhead Center uh, at Harvard, and a visiting scholar at the Center for Baltic and East European Studies at Sodertorn University in Sweden. And today, he'll be talking about his brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, Coming out of communism, the emergence of LGBT activism in Eastern Europe. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you all for coming. It's really a pleasure to be here. And uh, it's wonderful to be in sunny Seattle. And it's funny (laughs) to say that coming from Florida. So um, I'd like to begin with an image you can see here. Um, This is the the rainbow sculpture, which was installed uh, in a public square in Warsaw in 2012. Previous to that, it had been um, installed in front of the European Parliament. Um, It was not explicitly a gay rights uh, monument, but it was naturally interpreted as such, uh, both by Polish LGBT activists and also their opponents. Um, It sparked numerous arson attempts. You can kind of see that here in this picture, how half of it uh, is kind of charred. Um, By far-right hooligans, uh, a lot of criticism, Um, But after each time it was set on fire um, and partially burned, it was rebuilt painstakingly. um, And it mobilized large-scale signature campaigns, um, names uh, like Freedom Cannot Be Burned. Um, So I begin by asking, what do we make of this episode? Is it a sign of the rejection of transnational rights norms in countries that only relatively recently were admitted to the European Union, and thus the weakness of such international institutions and their associated advocacy networks uh, to transform politics on the ground um, in Eastern Europe and and the global rights periphery, let's say? Um, Or should we see it as a sign of a very large but contentious shift underway in Poland, um, a country that, you know, belongs and or is part of this kind of global rights periphery in terms of LGBT rights, um, but you know, but in which change is happening and, and recall the visibility of the symbol and, and its persistent defenders. Um, so the question I'd like to pose for today's talk is, you know, how and when might transnational norms and networks promote LGBT movements and in the rights periphery, even when such promotion sparks domestic backlash. Um, and I think it's an important question for our time because on the one hand, LGBT issues have become increasingly visible. 
LGBT advocates have become increasingly linked up um, across national boundaries. And there's also been considerable progress um, on the policy front, not notably with regard to same-sex partnerships. Um, it's also important uh, because for all the progress just noted, um, outside of the kind of LGBT rights core, maybe we could call that the United States and, and, and Western Europe, not all of Western Europe, um, but outside that core, there are significant barriers um, to LGBT rights and the movements that advocate them. Um, and these include weak civil society, um, which makes activism hard in general, um, and a legacy of repressing homosexuality. So what I'd like to talk about today, what I'd discuss is first of all, just kind of think about post-communist Europe as a, as a window into thinking about transnational LGBT advocacy. Um, give a quick survey of some of the kind of theoretical approaches and literature out there. Um, return to this question of how and when backlash might build uh, LGBT movements, and then kind of show some snapshots of compar comparing Poland and the Czech Republic. Um, and time permitting, maybe discuss some lessons, maybe we just go to questions and answers. Um, so the first question is thinking about or the first part is thinking about LGBT or thinking about post-communist Europe as a window into transnational LGBT advocacy. Um, I think it's a, a great context for exploring this question. Um, first of all, you know, as, as we mentioned, there's the communist legacies that we can think about. Um, we can think about the legacy of, of weak civil society, and I won't spend long time talking, I won't really talk about that so much right now, but you know, there's a lot of work on this when you look at kind of post-communist um, literature on post-communism like Mark Howard and, and Ken Jowett and more recently uh, Paul Belakesh and Tucker. There's a lot of uh, work about this kind of weakness of civil society and the difficulty that poses for activism. The second um, kind of Im important aspect of looking at the region is that there is this legacy of repressing homosexuality uh, under communism. The communist authorities in general, and there were some differences across countries, obviously, um, but they generally saw homosexuality as a social disorder, kind of in the best case, um, and a criminal offense um, at the other end of the spectrum. And as a result, people were very, um, they were not open about their uh, orientation, and there were a lot of negative stereotypes uh, and kind of feeding off this invisibility in, in, the, in the public sphere. And the evidence of these legacies is still very much present today. Um, you can see it if you look at public attitudes, if you look at public policies, if you look at culture. Um, so just briefly, um, here you have um, attitudes towards homosexuality in Western Europe and post-communist Europe compared over kind of 1998 to 2002. Um, I don't think it's changed that much uh, in the meantime. But what you see is, you know, there is variation in both regions, but but there's also clear variation between the two regions too, right? So everything has kind of shifted down when we look at um, uh, the post-communist countries, and we can see the same thing if we were to look at, you know, policy. If we look at the kind of policy um, rights in the two halves of Europe. Is that Cyprus or Malta at the end of the ladder in? that's going underground. Turkey. Turkey. That's Turkey. Turkey. Oh, yes, Turkey. yes. But Malta is actually there as well. Um, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit to the left. 
Um, yes. All right. Um, I think we can also see uh, this imprint and in political culture, um, and you know we might think of political culture, you know, in many ways, but one kind of uh, more quantified way of thinking about it is is that by um, Ronald Inglehart um, and his associates, um, who have this kind of cross-national index of post-material values, and, and, and homosexuality is, is generally considered sort of one of the kind of, um, or tolerance of homosexuality is considered one of the kind of leading indicators, kind of post-materialism. Um, and so if, if uh, you think about this, you know, how they define post-materialism, it's kind of a combination of, you know, tradition, where you, of secular, secularism, as opposed to um, traditionalism and religiosity, um, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it's, uh, and it can be thought of in terms of uh, self-expression values, of kind of expressing one's sort of individuality and, and, um, and self, as opposed to kind of survival values, which is kind of like, you know, suppressing that in order to kind of take care of more basic issues about well-being and, and income and things like that. Um, and so kind of post-materialist societies or more kind of open societies tend to be up in this kind of right-hand side um, and, and the opposite spectrum is coming down on the left. You, you can see here looking at kind of a mapping of Europe, uh, European countries that, you know, the communist countries clearly uh, separate from um, West Europe and especially Scandinavian countries. Um, and uh, they are, you know, the survival values predominate there. Um, they are a bit more secular as the legacy of communism, but, um, but not always. So Poland is quite traditional um, and more survival oriented than the rest, than, than Western Europe. Uh, Czech Republic is kind of interesting and we leverage this, uh, or I, I leverage this in the comparison because it in a way is more like Western Europe uh, than, than Eastern Europe, um, in that it's there's more uh, sec it's more secular and it also has kind of more self-expression. Um, okay, so second general reason um, to think about going back uh, to why it's interesting to look at Eastern Europe to think about um, this question is that there's a very high exposure to transnational norms and networks in, in Eastern Europe. Um, since the early 1990s, EU membership was sort of the, the main foreign policy goal of the applicant states. Um, and at that same time, or during the period of that, the EU became a kind of international leader in terms of promoting LGBT rights. And it applied a lot of pressure on applicant states to implement at least some level of um, policy reforms uh, regarding LGBT. Um, and it also kind of conferred legitimacy on activists. Um, Third, uh, it's interesting to study because there are lots of instances of backlash against that um, EU kind of uh, pressure. And, you know, we become familiar with these things like banning pride parades, violence against LGBT people, homophobic rhetoric by nationalist po politicians, even laws against homosexual propaganda in, in, in Russia. Um, and then fourth, uh, there is variation at the same time. So backlash we know about, but less appreciated is that there's variation regarding backlash, uh, the extent to which backlash occurs. It's not a across-the-board phenomenon um, in all countries. 
And there's also variation in the organization of LGBT activism. So in the early 1990s, in general, LGBT activism looked pretty standard across the region. Um, it was informally organized, locally based, um, and apolitical, more about kind of self-help and um, services. Um, by 2010-11, um, some movements in some countries had made big progress on all of these dimensions. Uh, Poland, surprisingly, uh, Polish uh, LGBT movement is very professionally organized. It's quite institutionalized. Uh, it's national level scale, so it spans the, the country. Um, and it's politically oriented and even electorally mobilized. So um, it's quite a dramatic uh, change from the early 90s. So that's what I focus on in the book, is kind of thinking about um, the organization of activism. And um, that's what I'll focus on today. So how some movements kind of cross these thresholds that I just mentioned. OK, so very briefly, just to kind of describe some of the literature uh, on transnational norms and networks and um, how they have been able to strengthen or, or not uh, LGBT movements. Uh, on the rights periphery. So um, I'm not going to set these up as sort of rival or, or as like, you know, um, mutually exclusive, uh, but, you know, there's overlap between them, but I think there's also differences um, in emphasis. Um, so the first is a kind of Europeanization model, um, very influential uh, way of thinking about transnational diffusion, um, which argues that the EU is this kind of ultimate institutionalized transnational network, um, and it can reshape domestic politics. <coughs> through a variety of mechanisms, one being external incentives and conditionality, sort of offering rewards or sanctions in return for um, uh, compliance, let's say. Um, of course, the flip side of this is once the external leverage goes down, um, you don't expect the compliance anymore. Um, the second uh, kind of mechanism of the Europeanization School is this idea of social learning in which norm compliance occurs through persuasion, sort of persuasion uh, that the EU's norms are appropriate. Um, and so it's a kind of socialization process. And which one is that? Uh, sorry, I actually, I don't have that up there, but um, that's all within the Europeanization model. Um, and uh, the thing about this, uh, you know, and it, it really didn't develop about LGBT politics, this kind of Europeanization is much broader than that, um, but it was also applied to this area. I think it has a hard time, actually, harder time making sense of LGBT politics than it does some other aspects of European um, domestic politics in the applicant states. Um, so for example, in Poland, um, the organization of the Polish movement got much stronger after conditionality you know, started to weaken. So it was kind of after the leverage was as the leverage was declining, that's when the Polish movement started to um, get stronger. Um, and in terms of social learning, uh, you know, the, the prediction is that when um, domestic and EU norms clash strongly, that you don't expect to see social learning. You don't expect to see persuasion in that kind of circumstance. So, um, so it actually, I think, doesn't work that well thinking about LGBT politics. Um, a second kind of uh, model is this boomerang idea, which is that, um, and it, it, I think it does a better job dealing with backlash, it basically argues that domestic activists can go around domestic roadblocks or domestic governments that kind of put roadblocks in their way um, by reaching out to transnational allies, kind of going around the national and going up to the transnational. 
who can then put pressure from above on the domestic government. Um, what I would say uh, is this model, though, it tends to focus more on the supranational institutions than the, the domestic level actors. Um, and it also puts less attention on the opponents, the domestic level opponents of LGBT rights. Um, and so it leaves some questions open, like you know, what sustains uh, movements domestically during this? Um, and how can we just assume the kind of savviness uh, to be able to use transnational institutions um, as allies against uh, recalcitrant domestic governments? Um, third way of talking about this, I would say associated with Clifford Bob, and um, it has a, a kind of, um, I would call it the gridlock model. And I think the advantage of this is it takes the opponents of LGBT rights very seriously. Um, but I would say it's also too pessimistic about, about them. Um, essentially, it argues that for every transnational network like the EU uh, supporting a progressive rights norm, there's a kind of counter uh, conservative transnational um, network, a kind of Burqa Bible network. Um, and so, so the two kind of are constantly kind of clashing with each other, and the result is policies don't change. Um, I would say that um, this is a bit too pessimistic, um, and part of that is because it, it focuses on policy. And so um, I think if we look beyond policy, policy is not everything. Um, we, work, we, we can see that the organization and dynamics of the social movement are not so kind of static, or, or they're not canceling each other out um, in the same way that the policies might be. So the last approach um, is the one that I try to articulate in the book, and I'd say there's other scholars who have very uh, kind of complementary uh, ideas. Uh, Philip Ayub, Agnieszka Graf, just to mention uh, two others. But it, it really kind of thinks about uh, external leverage and domestic opposition. Uh, so the EU is important, but it, it on the one hand, it, it doesn't reduce uh, contention to policy battles. Um, it plays very close attention to the dynamics of the movement, um, its organization, its visibility, um, and, and those things are generally low in the periphery. Um, it has an appreciation of the organization of activism and um, the frailty of LGBT movements on their own uh, in a weak civil society, so it's kind of left to domestic resources. Um, and I think it also has a, you know, a sensitivity to the domestic context and historical process. Um, and the sort of basic point is uh, that under the right conditions, um, you can get kind of backlash. Um, you can get the kind of clash between transnational and domestic, but that can actually end up furthering the movement. Um, so coming back to those questions uh, that we began with, um, how may backlash uh, build LGBT movements, and when might it build LGBT movements? Um, so the how question, spend some time talking about this uh, in the book. Uh, I think there are three main ways in which uh, this kind of clash between the transnational and domestic actually ends up furthering the organization of the LGBT movements on the ground. First of all, it really transforms the visibility and framing of LGBT issues. Um, when the opponents of transnational norms make an issue of homosexuality, um, especially in the post-communist context, 
what they really do is they spotlight what previously had been an invisible issue. Um, and they also change the way the issue is framed to the extent that it was framed earlier. Um, it tended to be framed in one of two ways, um, especially in these, these two countries. Um, either it was framed in terms of kind of morality, uh, kind of moral question, or it was framed as a kind of therapy question, a kind of, you know, um, sexological sort of uh, therapeutic self-help kind of uh, framing of homosexuality. Um, and the transnational uh, norms kind of allow a rights and standards frame uh, of thinking about homosexuality. Um, so this backlash can change sort of both how visible the issue is and then how the issue is talked about. Um, and I'd say that the EU issue of kind of, or the EU framing of kind of rights and standards for thinking about homosexuality always kind of resonates within the movement, but it doesn't necessarily resonate outside the movement. And I think the backlash is kind of helpful in, in allowing that to happen. So the more the kind of opponents of the EU um, and opponents of homosexuality um, decry the uh, homosexuality as a kind of threat imposed by the EU or so the, the LGBT rights as a kind of EU threat, um, instead of talking about homosexuality as, as something about morality or something about you know, self-help and, and therapy, um, the more they actually kind of increase the resonance and credibility of the rights framing of it because you know, they're, they're framing uh, you know, kind of rights uh, and standards very negatively, but nevertheless they're talking about homosexuality in terms of rights and standards and, and rather than these other ways. So they link LGBT rights with the EU. Um, and the EU has many supporters in Poland. Um, in, it has many critics as well, but it also has many supporters. Um, so the second thing is uh, when you have backlash domestically, I think it really builds the internal solidarity of the movement. And this is important to remember, again, that civil society is weak in general, and it's hard to build movements. Um, so coming under uh, threat from backlash and overcome some of these um, you know, free rider problems, these kind of collective action problems to participating and contributing to a social movement. Um, and I, I picked up on um, kind of argument here by David Snow and, and others from social movement theory, kind of thinking about um, how social movements often have this kind of immediate protective surround, this kind of like zone of, of safety around them, a kind of uh, sort of expectations of um, things that you take for granted. Um, and when that zone can sort of come under threat, it can mobilize this um, response, um, which is important because, you know, even in the absence of a lot of resources that social movements usually have um, when they're successful, um, you can get collective action if this kind of protective surround is, is seen to be violated. Um, so that helps when we're talking about a weak civil society. Uh, the third thing is, I think, uh, backlash often can draw allies to the movement. So when framing the e uh, homosexuality as an EU issue and a rights issue, when that gains resonance outside the movement, then it's to draw in allies who feel like pro-EU, um, and they would not necessarily have paid attention to LGBT rights before. They wouldn't have kind of linked the two. Um, 
So that's kind of how. The question then is like when? Um, and I don't think this always happens. Um, I don't think it's always the case that uh, LGBT movements in post-communist countries get this kind of boost from, from backlash. Um, so I spend some time kind of thinking about um, the conditions where this can happen. And to put it you know, succinctly as possible, um, basically I argue that backlash occurs, uh, or sorry, backlash against these transnational pressures boosts activism when the hard right becomes politically pivotal in a closed society. Um, so thinking about closed versus open society, what I had in mind here was this kind of uh, figure that we showed earlier with Inglehart, you know, with the post-materialism, the traditional values and self-expressive values. Um, so we can think about, you know, where a society fits uh, on that spectrum. Um, and then the other uh, dimension is thinking about the hard right. Um, and thinking about how politically pivotal they are in a country's politics at, at any given moment. Um, and typically, you know, I guess before the present day, <laughs> uh, hard right parties were sort of more on the fringes of politics. Um, and when they become pivotal, however, um, when they make a kind of electoral breakthrough and become sort of credible candidates for shaping government policy, those are the moments when framing contests around homosexuality get unusual resonance in society. Um, and they also raise legitimate fears on the part of LGBT people that you know, the protective surround is now threatened. And that kind of galvanizes the response that we were talking about just a minute ago. Um, so I organized different countries. I don't know how, hopefully you can all see this, or maybe not so well. But um, I only want to focus on, for now, I'm just going to focus on, on, on two quadrants here. But you know, based on whether the hard right are pivotal or not, and the society is open or closed, you can kind of think about um, when backlash can have a effect, a, a benefit for the movement. So Poland is up there in the third quadrant, up in the top right corner, um, and you know, in in in, in this kind of scenario, um, you have a closed society. Um, you have an electoral breakthrough by the hard right, and this kind of threatens the protective surround. It amplifies the framing contest between EU rights and norms and intolerant attitudes, and it brings visibility, internal solidarity, and, and it wins allies among uh, pro-EU elites. The opposite end of the spectrum uh, is down in the lower left corner, um, and this is where you, you don't have uh, it's the society is open, and you don't have kind of a breakthrough by hard right parties. Um, and this is the situation that would describe the Czech Republic. Um, and we don't expect resonant framing contests because the hard right aren't there kind of to make this a big issue. Um, and there isn't a lot of resonance anyway because society is more open, more tolerant. Um, and so in this situation, you kind of expect that domestic conditions are going to kind of structure the fortunes of the movement, as opposed to this kind of transnational um, clash between domestic and, and EU. Um, I won't say anything about the other two for now. We can talk about it in the question and answer, if you like. Um, I would like now just to kind of illustrate this by uh, comparing um, Poland and the Czech Republic 
and I pick a few snapshots in time that that allow us to kind of think about when the EU had leverage, when it didn't, um, and and how uh, the movement became more or less organized. Um, so they're interesting. Czech Republic and Poland are interesting cases to compare um, because, um, well, share the, the communist legacy, of course. Um, but the initial conditions in these two countries were actually quite different. Um, and they were actually much better. They were much fav more favorable, at, at least the domestic, looking at the domestic side of the ledger um, in the Czech Republic. So as we'll see, the Czech Republic starts well, but then kind of declines seriously over time. Um, and so I would say that it, it highlights the difficulties of LGBT activism, uh, even in a comparatively open post-communist society. Um, Poland is the kind of opposite side, where it's relatively closed, um, experienced strong backlash, um, but now has one of the best organized uh, movements. So in 1989, um, as communism fell, uh, if we compared the two movements, we'd see that you know Poland, uh, gay and lesbian community was pretty far underground. Um, it was very locally organized, very informal, apolitical. It had no state recognition. In the Czech Republic, um, it was kind of interesting. It kind of came out of the communist period, um, but gay and lesbian community was sort of organized into these self-help groups. Um, during the communist period? Yes, yes. Even, yeah, it's, it's, it's surprising. Um, but it, was, it happened through these sexological institutes. So it's this, that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's basically a kind of combination of medical and psychological, uh, kind of human reproductive behavior. Uh, they call it sexology. Um, and uh, so it would be like psychologists and doctors um, and maybe sociologists as well. And, and yeah, so it's called sexology. And they had these institutes and, um, you know, and... and uh, you know, it developed in its own interesting way uh, under communism, and I read about it. Uh, it's kind of a fascinating story in itself. But um, but what it meant was that you know the doctors at these institutes were kind of organizing uh, gay, uh, mostly gay men, but you know some lesbians as well and bisexuals um, in these, as I said, sort of therapeutic uh, groups. Um, and these groups became officially recognized in the course of the 1989 revolution. Um, so it was local, it was kind of informal and apolitical, but it was state recognized. Um, and it did provide this kind of platform later that you could build off of uh, for the movement. So if we skip ahead to 1997, um, this is before the EU is really kind of active, uh, offering much um, influence or much leverage on this particular issue, um, what do we see? Uh, in, in the period between the kind of the early 1990s, um, Poland had this kind of flowering of, of local groups, uh, LGBT groups that were publicly uh, recognized. Um, and they kind of sprung up in a bunch of different cities around the country. But at a certain point, kind of in the mid-1990s, the whole thing started to go in the opposite direction. Um, and these groups had lots of problems staying afloat. They had lots of kind of disputes, sometimes internally be between each other, getting funding, this kind of thing. Um, and one of the earliest groups, which is called the Polish Lambda Association, dissolved in 1997. Um, whoops, oh yeah, I got that. Um, 
and it 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 looked like uh, and, and it was very apolitical. It was mainly focused on kind of AIDS prevention and, and AIDS awareness. Um, and it really looked like the movement was moribund. Um, there was only one public LGBT group after 1997 uh, until 2001, and it was located in Warsaw. So that was the, that was the only group in the country. Um, so initial kind of spike, but then very rapid, almost, almost kind of dying off completely. Um, in the Czech Republic, there was also a kind of post-1989 flowering of local publicly recognized groups, um, but there it got a lot of momentum, um, and it had a more favorable domestic conditions, it had more state support, um, and they built this na national umbrella group called SOHO, which was very formally organized. Um, it had its own media, it had political goals, it had full-time activists, it had stable state funding. Um, and just to quote one analyst of this, SOHO this was kind of writing in the 1990s. Soho is the only genuinely national gay and lesbian network in the former Soviet bloc, and arguably one of the best organized in Europe. So it was, you know, really quite successful at this point. Um, so 2002. This is the period before um, either country has joined the EU. So the EU leverage is very strong. Um, Poland uh, has the movement has kind of recovered. Uh, from its kind of death spiral. Um, and it's done so with a lot of kind of help from the kind of EU accession process, which kind of allowed it to sort of uh, become a partner with the government and the EU and sort of talking about this issue and thinking about anti-discrimination and those kinds of things. Um, so activism started to become more institutionalized, it started to become more political. The EU rights frame sort of resonates, but only within the movement. Um, and the movement still doesn't have kind of national reach. It's very much kind of a Warsaw, uh, maybe Krakow, a few bigger cities. Um, and it doesn't have a strong grassroots mobilization. In the Czech Republic, um, the brokerage role is limited for uh, groups working with the EU. Um, they're kind of more focused on a domestic issue, registered partnerships. Um, they also uh, and this actually becomes very divisive uh, within the movement because there's kind of a split. Some the kind of the, the, the gay men sort of want domestic partner or same-sex partnerships as sort of at all costs. The that the female uh, part of the movement uh, is much more interested in, you know, that's important that like adoption rights be included and, and some kind of family rights, um, and this creates a lot of tension. Another thing that happens kind of more domestically oriented uh, is that state funding kind of dries up. So they stop getting a, this very generous funding that they've gotten from the state until this point. So there's kind of unfavorable domestic circumstances and a lack of kind of um, EU resonance. After 2006, so now by this point, both countries have joined the EU. Um, the leverage is, is low. Um, as we talked about, in Poland, there is a very strong backlash. Uh, this is the first round of law and justice in government, the current government in Poland, which is again kind of um, exercising a lot of uh, conservative social policies. But, um, but this was the first time that they came to power. And they were, had this very even more radical partner called the League of Polish Families, which were very nationalist, very anti-gay. Um, this was the time when you know pride parades were banned in Warsaw. 
Um, there was really homophobic rhetoric um, from the national politicians. Um, there was this kind of feeling of threat, you know. Um, but what you saw was this kind of sudden, like, huge upswing in participation in pride parades, building out of the network of, of, of NGOs. There was this group called Campaign Against Homophobia, and it built a national network in Poland during this time. Um, so activism becomes national, it's formalized, it's political, it's visible, and it's cohesive. Um, in the Czech Republic, hard right never, you know, is basically disappears at this point. Um, uh, there is this uh, domestic policy win on same-sex partnerships, but it had been a very internally divisive campaign, um, and it didn't kind of resonate with kind of EU aspect because the EU was not, you know, that that's not part of the EU norm that necessarily you have same-sex partnership. Um, and uh, what's kind of interesting, for example, that just sort of shows uh, how weak uh, you know, the activism had become in the Czech Republic, once the groups that had sort of mobilized for same-sex partnerships achieved this law, which was very kind of symbolic more than, than real, because it didn't have adoption rights, it didn't have like visitation rights. If your partner got sick in the hospital, you couldn't visit the partner. So there were all these kinds of things. It was really kind of... Uh, same-sex partnership in name more than in form. Um, the two major groups said, that's it, we're done. <laughs> and they dissolved. So they, they disbanded their membership um, and there was kind of a dearth of organized activism um, in the Czech Republic. So it, it kind of went back to the local, informal, apolitical um, side of things. We go ahead, this is the last snapshot. Uh, we're almost finished here. Um, 2011. Um, the trends that I mentioned just now have sort of continued. Um, in Poland, the hard right government of law and justice and League of Polish Families fell in 2007. Um, but that kind of impetus that they provided to the movement sort of continued to kind of galvanize things. Um, and they continued to build out. And what was really notable at this point was that the kind of mobilization became electoral mobilization. Um, so in 2011, they had these national elections and um, there was a new party founded called Your Movement or Palikot Movement. Um, and it made LGBT rights one of its main campaign goals. Um, it won third place in the elections. Um, they also elected a transgender activist and the former head of the largest Polish gay rights NGO. Um, so this was really quite a breakthrough. Um, and the fact that you could have this kind of electoral mobilization really uh, was significant. Um, whereas in the Czech Republic, um, there's still this kind of um, attempt to refound the movement. And um, that's kind of ongoing. Um, but it didn't really change that much. And, and uh, there was no success, say, in adding or, or building on the same-sex partnerships legislation that the, the Czechs had managed to achieve, so they weren't able to address some of the very obvious holes in the legislation. Um, and uh, they're actually still working on same-sex partnerships uh, in the Czech Republic. They haven't uh, succeeded in doing that. So um, how am I doing in terms of time? Should I stop there? Uh, fairly soon. OK. Um, I guess <laughs> I've been talking for a long time. That's a, I won't talk about the second what counts as success. But I do think um, one thing we could say, um, and I'll just say very briefly, is 
you know, you might listen to this and think it's incredibly optimistic sounding, um, even Pollyannish, Pollyannish um, that, you know, to say that, you know, coming on, under attack is, is in some way a good thing for the movement. Um, I'm not trying to downplay the obvious uh, threats from hard right mobilization and the dangers that can pose to individuals, for sure. Um, and you might look at an example like Russia and say, you know, this is exactly why you should be careful about um, anti-gay backlash. Um, I could, you know, say more about this, but I, I do want to end quickly so that we can have time to discuss. But I think what's really important, the difference between, say, Poland and Russia, is that in Poland, um, there was always a kind of limit to the level of repression that could be imposed um, because of, uh, you know, the conditions of being part of the EU and, and, and sort of the obligation as an EU member. And, and, and Russia doesn't have those. Russia doesn't, isn't constrained um, to some kind of maximum level of, of repression, you know, just think about the whole situation with Crimea and, you know, all of the pressure that was put on Russia as a result of that and which it, you know, ignored. So, um, so there needs to be some level, kind of upper bound on the level of uh, backlash that occurs. Um, and without that, the backlash can kill a movement, which is, I think, the, the current kind of trajectory in Russia. Um, so let me stop there. Uh, thank you very much for your attention. I hope I didn't go on too long, and I'd like to hear your questions. Thank you.